Chapter 12. Hope for a Free Future. I hate Gorbachev because he stole my motherland. I treasure my Soviet passport like it's my most precious possession. Yes, we stood in line for discoloured chicken and rotten potatoes, but it was our motherland. I loved it. Anonymous quote from Svetlana Alexievich's Secondhand Time, The Last of the Soviets. Has 21st century Ukraine stepped out of the communist era shadow? When I began my research for this book, I imagined that this was the case, that today's Ukraine had for the most part replaced the tribulations of the 1900s with other challenges. Populism, oligarchies, class divides, the war with Russia, and coexistence with globalization and social media. And up to a point, I was right. A modern infrastructure has been rolled out in a country that in many respects looks like many others and has the same public issues to address as Western Europe. And when the corona pandemic took hold in Ukraine, there was little of the denial and cover-up that we saw after the Chernobyl disaster. Yet, during two visits to Ukraine in 2019, I was struck even more by how heavily the Soviet legacy still hangs over people's lives. The Tsar and the General Secretary of the Communist Party may have been consigned to the history books, but people still yearn for a strong leader who steps in to put everything right. Vehicle-wise, the streets of the cities look no different from the global average, but in the rural areas and in the backyards, the rusty old larders still hold sway. And in conversations about the challenges facing the country, the Soviet epoch constantly crops up as an explanation and reference point for all manner of mischief. However, at heart, this legacy is often more Russian than Soviet, impregnated in Ukraine since the 18th century. Abiding within the Russian legacy is that of religious orthodoxy, which creates a common approach to the nature of existence. It is like a Russian doll, layer upon layer of historical experiences that, in terms of everyday Ukrainian life, continue to play a part and pull apart. Ukraine's 2020s identity-defining project revolves then around making peace with its Soviet and Russian background. Already back in 1992, essayist Mykola Rabchuk launched his concept of the two Ukraines, of an internal national tug-of-war. These days, he stresses that this struggle is primarily over values rather than culture or language. Czech author Milan Kundera stretched out an intellectual construct with a different perspective. In his The Stolen West, or the tragedy of Central Europe, he writes that the Iron Curtain of the Second World War shifted the old border between the Catholic Western Roman Empire and Orthodox Byzantium westwards and that the tribulations of 21st century Ukraine can be seen as an attempt to push it back. In this regard, Ukraine deserves the name of Borderland, the country that pushes the border around. The old cliché of East versus West is also still very pertinent as many people have taken it to heart, and sometimes let it serve as a convenient excuse. If the 2000s offered an opportunity to weave the country's two main threads into a single identity, everything changed with Euromaidan. In 2021, the war between Ukraine and Russia, now in its eighth year, 
has claimed over 13,000 lives. In the eastern Donbass region, Russian-backed separatists have established a breakaway republic, while Crimea has been completely annexed by Russia. After war broke out in 2014, it soon took on a modern, hybrid form, both open and clandestine, now with weapons on the front lines, now as a digital war of propaganda fought through traditional and social media. In the information war, pro-action and strength have been paramount, and what is classified as truth has complied with the needs of power. This logic prompted Russia to send troops in unmarked uniforms to Crimea in February and March 2014 to support what it called a popular uprising against the Kiev government. This was shortly followed by its formal annexation and the consequent imposition of sanctions on Russia by multiple countries. When a passenger flight operated by Malaysian Airlines was shot down by anonymous soldiers over Ukrainian territory in Donbass in July that same year with the loss of 298 lives, the international crisis escalated and the sanctions were tightened. In 2015, a Dutch study, most of the passengers came from the Netherlands, showed that the airplane had been downed by Russian-built artillery. Russia responded by coolly denying allegations of its involvement, and when the trial of the four men accused of shooting down the airplane opened in the Netherlands in the spring of 2020, Russian sources complained of a media witch hunt against the country. The Russian perspective is rooted in a soon century-long revanchist narrative centred on the struggle against fascism. The name The Second World War is given in Russia, the Great Patriotic War, hints at its significance to Russian identity, where self-esteem is conceptually bound up with a universally noble war. Russian expansion and its invasion of neighbouring states can therefore be described as a global movement for human liberation. More or less every pro-Russian opinion-forming text or interview with the Russian on the street is replete with indignant stories of fascist provocateurs. But Russia's status in the world is no longer what it once was, neither economically nor culturally. The nation, today an authoritarian nuclear power with a shrinking population, has an economy as large as South Korea's that is primarily based on oil and gas. What the Russian people feel about the country's imperial past is often a combination of pride and melancholy. The fact that nine out of Europe's ten tallest buildings are in Russia possibly says something about the country's need to flaunt its greatness. By cultivating an identity around historical victimhood, every perceived affront to national sentiments can motivate a demand for revenge. Even back when Ukraine, one of the Soviet Union's three core republics, proclaimed its independence in 1991, it was viewed in Russia as being just as sudden as it was incomprehensible. The idea of having Western-minded nations, or even worse, the arch-enemy NATO on the country's doorstep, was an insult. One key explanation for the war between Ukraine and Russia lies in the latter's own internal crisis of economy and identity. And the war has been popular in Russia. It has boosted President Putin's support and bolstered his image as the nation's commander-in-chief. Since Catherine the Great's colonisation of Crimea in the 18th century, the peninsula has grown into an emotional home for Russians. 
So when Khrushchev formally ceded it to Ukraine in 1954, it was more than anything a symbolic gesture within the Soviet family. But Ukraine's independence severed its ties to a Crimea where the majority population at the outbreak of war in 2014 was ethnic Russian. The fact that Russia leased Sevastopol for its Black Sea fleet and that the Crimean Peninsula sits on large gas and oil reserves made an annexation in the south an attractive prospect for Russia. After having arranged a disputed referendum on independence, the area became part of Russia in 2014. In May 2018, a new almost 20-kilometer bridge was officially opened over the Kerch Strait from the Russian mainland to Crimea by Vladimir Putin at the wheel of a lorry. Many Russians regard the annexation as a just correction of an abnormal state, while in Ukraine a general mood of resignation prevails that the Crimean Peninsula is lost territory. Donbass in eastern Ukraine does not, however, obey the same logic. This region has a background as a sparsely populated rural district to where peasants relocated from the Cossack state around the Dnieper when it was incorporated into Russia in the 1700s. Donbass became a borderland's borderland, a periphery of the periphery that has occasionally also striven for independence from Russia. Here, a sense of freedom has historically been cultivated that differs from the rest of Ukraine's. The region was also the worst hit of the country's oblasts by Stalin's Great Purge. The struggle for independence in Donbass is thus regionalist in character. Russia's ambitions in Donbass have been to establish a de facto presence and to set up Russian institutions in the area where Russian passports are now granted to Ukrainian citizens and where, in the spring of 2020, it was proclaimed that Ukrainian would no longer be an official language. However, certain signs have been discernible in the early 2020s that Russia's isolation and the war are reaching an end. In 2019, Zelensky signed an agreement based on the Steinmeier formula by which Donbass would be given autonomous status under Ukraine after demilitarization and that local elections could be held there in the presence of international observers. That autumn, the countries exchanged several hundred prisoners and three warships were returned to Ukraine in November. Ukrainian film director Oleg Sentsov and environmental activist Alexander Kolchenko, both convicted of terrorism, were repatriated. In December, Ukraine and Russia agreed on a continued gas supply to Europe via Ukraine. Still in 2021, troop maneuvers and attacks flare up in Donbass, and people continue to die. The propaganda war is also grinding on, on both sides. If the Kremlin feels threatened, it can spill over onto Ukraine. So, when opposition leader Alexei Navalny began his hunger strike in April 2021 and anti-Putin demonstrations gathered growing numbers of people on the streets, it was not long before Russia's defense minister, Sergei Shogu, ordered large-scale military exercises on Ukraine's eastern border. Meanwhile, Ukraine continues to work through its national identity crisis. Little Russia was once the name of parts of Ukraine sometimes along with Belarus. A little more slovenly, a little more freedom-loving, populated by a kind of Russian in shorts and mazeppa on their t-shirts. The Cossack heritage may be a myth, 
that such myths constitute narratives from which a people can draw a genuine sense of commonality. Volodymyr Yermolenko, Ukrainian intellectual and editor of Euromaidan Press, has written about the presence of a culture of suffering in the East, in contrast to the West, where a hedonistic view of modernization early took root. In the online magazine Eurozine, 25th of July 2019, Yermolenko writes that the collapse of the Soviet system led to the emergence of an attitude that merged this culture of suffering with a newly discovered hedonism. People realized formerly suppressed consumer dreams of money, power, luxury, and sex, but retained the deep rooted Soviet belief that the only way to obtain the good things in life is to purloin them from others. In Ukraine, Yermolenko argues, an instinct to purchase security also arose, history having taught people that what they own today can be gone tomorrow. Ukraine's battle for identity, be it a dual or a decathlon, is gravitating towards a liberal, pluralist, and what one might consider a Western European mindset. Russia won several territorial battles, but has lost the war for Ukraine's loyalty and affinity. Putin's war, paradoxically, thus achieved what no Ukrainian president since independence has managed to do. Unite the country around a burgeoning national sentiment. So, is the glass half full or half empty? In early 2020, the future seemed to brighten. Ukraine's economy seemed fit and healthy. Its budget deficit and national debt had shrunk and inflation had dropped from around 18% in the summer of 2019 to around 5%. Foreign investment had increased, along with IT exports. In 2020, the much-sought-after land reforms resulted in a bill for trading in agricultural lands in Ukraine, which the parliament passed during the spring. But the corona pandemic had struck, and by the following January, hopes had been dashed. The economy took a beating, albeit not as severely as had first been feared, and GDP dropped by 5% in 2020, unsurprisingly given the global situation. Its currency reserves increased thanks to inflated prices on grain and iron ore, while the cost of imported energy fell. When international tourism imploded, Ukraine was less severely hit, partly because it is not a major tourist destination and partly because the population spent their money at home. Most ominously of all, the clear progress that had been made in the fight against corruption stalled. The anti-corruption court was neutered and leading reformists in Zelensky's government were sidelined. And the president's popularity nosedived. In the regional elections of October 2020, Servant of the People suffered nationwide losses. In Transparency International's Corruption Index for 2019, the country ranked 126 out of 180. The Economist's Intelligence Unit annual classification still categorizes Ukraine as a hybrid regime between an autocracy and a democracy. A step above Russia, but below neighbouring Poland, classified as a flawed democracy. In the spring of 2020, Washington-based Global Financial Integrity published a study stating that a full 20% of Ukrainian trade is illicit and riddled with misinvoicing, money laundering and tax evasion. Again, 
Ukraine's fate. Just when the country seems to be reaching redress and prosperity, hopes are crushed by overpowering forces and an inability to break through deeply ingrained corruption. On the other hand, this pattern is so familiar in Ukraine that the people habitually rise up out of the ruins and trudge on. It is what it is. Even before the corona crisis, there were many who were sceptical towards all talk of the country's blooming prospects. Kirillo Tretiak, a democracy trainer at the EECMD who sketched out the challenges facing Ukrainian democracy in Chapter 1, has moved on to academic historical research and is dubious about the regime and the progress the country has made. Generally speaking, I don't think that the Zelensky regime has shown any significant positive results in any area. The professionalism of the government is low and the parliament is rife with conflict and scandal. Tretiak's desire for a party system based on policy platforms instead of person-centred projects has shown small but elusive signs of change. At the Servant of the People Congress in February 2020, party strategist Alexander Kornienko declared that Ukraine needs a programme different to that offered by nationalism, communism and neoliberalism and held out the prospect of a Ukrainian centrism, free from extremism and radicalism. We are patriots, and even nationalists when it comes to defending our country. But we are humanists when it comes to the defence of human rights and personal freedoms. We are liberals when we defend reasonable economic freedoms, yet we are socialists when it comes to protecting the poor and our pensioners, said Kornienko, serving up an ideological dish that seemed cooked to suit all palates. Despite the misery of war and pandemic, a weak economy and persistent corruption, a palpable normalisation of life has gradually settled on the country. Here, a vital role is played by digitalization. Mobile phones, internet, Uber, Airbnb, Facebook, Instagram and, perhaps even more consequentially, the digitalization of public and commercial services. The lives of young Ukrainians resemble those of many places on Earth, and herein lies one of the great, often forgotten narratives of modern times, that of the global spread of the middle class. This vast expansion no longer covers hundreds of millions, but billions of people who have children in school, have access to primary care, socialise on the move with global and local friends, stream films, and wear comfortable sports fashions with trainers, T-shirts, and factory-distressed jeans in a style that differs little from Stockholm to Luhansk. As in many other countries, Ukraine's democracy operates in a market economy where politics is conducted on media terms and in a way that gives populists an ominous advantage. But these terms differ from those in the West in one significant way. Ukraine is marked by the challenges of emigration, Western Europe by those of immigration. A fundamental difference in attitude towards globalization is taking shape. Unlike its economically stronger neighbours like Poland, Hungary and Russia, Ukraine has a libertarian kind of nationalism in which diversity has become entrenched in spite, and partly because of the country's straggling oligarchic rule. Ukraine's nationalists are globally minded. Ukraine bears a promise of openness. One autumn evening, 
my airplane takes off northward from the city's Borispiel Airport, and I recall a comment from Andrei Kruglashov, the activist and consultant I met at the restaurant in Kiev. Ukraine is the graveyard of empires. Karl XII Sweden, Tsarist Russia post-1917, Austria-Hungary after the First World War, Germany after the Second, and the Soviet Union after the referendum in 1991. But in today's Ukraine, all former presidents except Yanukovych still live in the country. That's a good sign, if you ask me.